audio was recorded at St. Barnabas Bible School in Larnaca, Cyprus. To find more resources or to find out more about St. Barnabas Bible School, visit our website at www.stbarnabasbibleschool.org. started. Uh, I'll pray and then we'll begin. Okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance we have to be together tonight to study these things. Lord, we pray that you would bless us as we look at your word, uh, bless us as we think about the first of your commandments, uh, fill us with knowledge of you and love for you and a desire to obey you in every part of our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Okay, just a short recap from uh, from a few weeks back now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last thing we looked at was what the the life of ethical formation looks like for the individual believer. So we looked at sanctification, uh, what we're aiming for uh, as believers in our um, our growth into ethical maturity. Uh, we're looking to know the standards of God. We're looking to understand the situations around us so that we can apply those standards, uh, and we're looking to love the standards and to be people who are shaped deeply by them. Um, We're now sort of moving on to the second half of the course, uh, which is an attempt to to do those things, those three things, in natural concretes of particular ethical situations, to actually get to know some Christian ethics, um, not just the background, the the foundations uh, below them, and apply the word of God to some particulars or at least some slightly more particular situation. So what we're going to do in this second half of the course, uh, as I've said before, is we're going to take the Ten Commandments, we're going to exposit those, we're going to apply them, um, and we're going to use those Ten Commandments uh, to sort of see the broader applications throughout the Bible and what they might mean for some modern issues that we face today. So that's that's what we're going to do. Uh, I've hoped to take two at a time. Some we will take two at a time. Some need a bit more uh, fleshing out, so we'll see. How we get on in terms of timings for each of the commandments. Today we're just going to look at one. We're going to look at the first commandment. Um, and inevitably, with the time that we've got, we're just going to be scratching the surface of this. Uh, much more could be said and should be said. And uh, I'm sure you'll think much more on these things throughout your life. Uh, but let's get started. Here's the first commandment. This is from Exodus 20, uh, verses, 20 uh, verses 2 and 3. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Um, Before we get into the command itself, notice there how the Ten Commandments starts. It starts with that declaration of great benevolence from God. I am the one who has brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You're my people now. I've saved you. That's the beginning of these commandments. And then you shall have no other gods before me. Before we look at the details of that commandment, there's one particular topic that would be helpful for us to think about a little bit, because it's relevant to the first commandment, it's also relevant to the second commandment, it's relevant to all of them really, but in particular to the first two commandments, Uh, so it's good to clear it away here, and that's the topic of uh, worship. What is worship? That's the question. Um, Obviously it's an English word, worship, it comes from I think it's an Anglo-Saxon word, worship, to show the worth of, some, of something. Um, that, is, that is what worship is. 
Uh, and, and in our English Bibles, it is, uh, it's a translation of, sort of quite a number of Greek um, Hebrew words. Um, Greek words like proskino and latrevo, which are the key Greek ones. Uh, the first of those, proskino, has a sense of sort of bowing down, of prostrating yourself before someone, showing honour, showing allegiance, uh, showing humility and submission. Uh, and the second of those, latrevo, carries with it a sort of a slightly more ceremonial um, sense of things, a sort of uh, what we might think of as religious rites or, or um, sort of cultic worship. Uh, not intended to do a detailed word study here. Um, it's beyond the scope uh, of this lecture and it's beyond the scope of me, really, um, and, and how much I've been able to prepare for this. So uh, we won't do a detailed word study of those. Um, but just what are we talking about when we talk about worship? And particularly when we're going to be talking about the first two commandments, what are we talking about? Well, we can talk broadly and we can talk narrowly about worship. Um, when we talk about worship broadly, that's when we're, we're thinking of worship as a, a sort of all of life. I don't know if you've heard of people talking about worship as everything I do is worship. All of my life is worship. As in like Romans 12. As in Romans 12, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's what I've got written down here. Yeah. Everything done to the glory of God. All of life. Uh, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, as we have in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. And as, uh, as you've just mentioned, Lisa, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Um, so we, we can talk about worship broadly, by which we mean everything we do in our life, is an act of worship. Everything is all to the praise of God. Um, and notice there that Paul uses explicitly kind of sacrificial language, cultic language to talk about this. Um, and so it's, it's legitimate to talk about all of life as worship. The Bible talks about life that way. Um, and, it, and it reflects that sort of temple worship of the Old Testament. Um, all of life is to be lived as an act of worship, that is, it is to bring glory and honour to his name, an act of submission to his lordship in every part of time and space. So we can talk about worship very broadly, uh, such that everything that the Christian does ought to be an act of worship. Um, so that's sort of one end of how we can talk about worship. Now we have a sort of slightly narrower way, but it's still pretty broad. Um, this is when we talk about uh, sort of explicitly religious actions or elements of life in the day-to-day. -day. So, um, you know, individual prayer at any time or uh, singing songs of praise at home with your family. You know, these are uh, a slightly narrower sense of worship. You know, you talk about family worship time or, or things like that. Um, and it's clear throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that this has happened for God's people from the beginning. Um, I don't think I need to list a load of examples of personal piety uh, through, through, the, uh, through the Bible. Um, you know, Daniel in his house prays with the window open mm. towards Jerusalem. You know, so he's, he's worshipping in a slightly more narrower sense than all of his life is worship, but he's not at the temple engaged in temple worship. And then we can talk about worship much more narrowly as well. We can talk about worship as a, as a corporate, organised act uh, 
with particular actions and a ceremonial occasion. Um, in the Old Testament, worship, proper worship in this narrowest of senses happened in the temple. Um, well, first in the tabernacle and then uh, in the temple. Um, interestingly, uh, I don't know if you... Most people, when they're thinking about the progression from the tabernacle through to the temple, um, they miss out, a, miss out a, a step there in the development of, of Old Testament worship. Um, we have the, uh, the tabernacle built in the days of Moses. Um, sacrifices are offered there. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant is in there. Um, that tabernacle in the times of David is in Shiloh. Um, sacrifices are happening there. David br brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and then builds a second tabernacle. Um, before the temple is built. So we have a, a period of time where there are two tabernacles. Uh, one where uh, animal sacrifices are being offered um, and one where um, the Ark of the Covenant is. And interestingly, I, I sort of mentioned this just to fill out this idea of worship from the Old Testament. Interestingly, in the tabernacle of David, there is something that is offered. It's not sacrifices. It is song. That is the sacrifice that happens at the tabernacle of David in Jerusalem when the Ark of the Covenant is there. And so uh, from that point onwards, you get a very clear emphasis on sung worship as part of the people, of, part of the actions of the people of God. Um, uh, interestingly enough, when you get to the book of Acts and you're at the Jerusalem Council, um, one of the things the apostles say is, um, when they're talking about what to do with the Gentiles, they bring up a promise of the Old Testament that God will rebuild, I think in our English translations it's often the tent of David, which makes it sound like uh, David's house has fallen. But really it's the tabernacle of David, which is what, what this first tabernacle was called in Jerusalem. God will rebuild the tabernacle of David, and he's doing that through the Gentiles. So uh, what God is doing is gathering a sacrifice of some worship to him from the Gentiles. Um, just a very sort of I find that fascinating. Yeah, um, so that just, just to say that the, the practice of singing together as God's people and offering that as a, as a, as a, a sacrifice to God is, is old, has come from the Old Testament, and carries on all the way through, um, through the New Testament uh, to this day. Um, so there's, there's, uh, there's, we can talk about worship narrowly in this sort of ceremonial process. Uh, ritual sense in the temple, but also uh, in the sort of um, the, the proto-synagogues that were there in the Old Testament as well. Um, so we often think of synagogues as being sort of a New Testament development of, of things, but actually um, this, is, this is Leviticus 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations, that is holy gatherings, um, they are my appointed feasts. Uh, and the first of these, even back in Leviticus 23, is six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So uh, way back, we have uh, temple worship. We have Sabbath worship in proto-synagogues throughout the land. Um, this has been a feature of the life of God's people forever and continues. Uh, gathered worship together in the corporate body um, as, a, as a very particular, very particular sort of potent manifestation of, uh, of the worship of God's people. 
Um, so we can talk about worship both very broadly and very narrowly. The first two of the commandments, the Ten Commandments, are, are really focused on, on worship. And uh, we need to bear in mind that as we look at these first two commandments, we are, we are thinking of, of both of these ends of the spectrum. Worship broadly and worship narrowly. And there are applications and implications for both of those types of worship. Um, worship, we'll see, forms really the, the heart of the ethical life of God's people. Um, and that's why these first two commandments are so focused there. On, on the relationship of God's people with God himself, with their worship of him, their, their sort of God-facedness, um, the way they look towards him. Because their worship of him is the centre, the heart of every other part of their ethical life. All righteousness flows from the central place that the, the worshipping and serving God has for the life of God's people. Um, just as the, as the, the blessings of God all flow from the central blessing of God with his people. Uh, so all of the ethical life of God's people flows from their worship of him and their relationship uh, with him. Any questions at this point? Um, just about the, uh, the tabernacle that David mm. built to house Moses' tabernacle. So uh, uh, Moses' tabernacle is at Shiloh in the time of yes. David? Yeah. David builds another tabernacle to house the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. You remember, he brings the Ark of the Covenant, Covenant in. Yes, yeah. And on one of the hills in Jerusalem, he then builds another tabernacle. There's no animal sacrifices taking place at that tabernacle. They're all still happening in the time of David at Shiloh. It's still at Shiloh. Still at Shiloh. Yeah. Uh, in Jerusalem, um, you've got... Uh, so if you read through Chronicles, you'll see a heavy emphasis on David arranging the singers and the musicians for the tabernacle of David in Jerusalem. Um, so that, that's what's happening there, song. Um, and, uh, and then when Solomon comes, those two are, are sort of fused together in Jerusalem in the building of the temple. So the building of the temple, you have both animal sacrifices and song. Um, Um, yeah, I, 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 it, it's just something to, you know, uh, it's, in, it's just such a wonderful thing that God is doing in, in, in drawing in the Gentiles, as we see in Acts, that he's rebuilding the tabernacle of David, you know, filling the world with a, a sacrifice of sung adoration of God. And, and, and we see that again, you know, in the book of Revelation where the curtain is lifted and we see what the, what the, the glorified saints are doing in heaven and, and what the people of God are, are to join in with whilst they're still on earth is some worship of, uh, of God. Um. Okay, so then the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Essentially, this is very, very simple. You worship both broadly and narrowly, only the true God. God shall be above all in all forms of worship. Um, God shall be the only one to whom it is given. Uh, only God, only the true and living God, only the one who is actually God. 
And this is a commandment that says that no other being, no other philosophy, no other idea, nothing else can come to take God's place in the life of of his people. Nothing can come to fill that God place, that God spot. Nothing, and no one else will sit on that throne for his people. We've got to ask, um, what does it mean to have someone or something as God? What would it look like for people to replace God in that God spot uh, in their lives? Um, I hate to talk about something so crude as sort of the function of God in people's minds and in their systems of thinking or in their worldview. Um, but it's helpful to think of, you know, what kind of role does a God fill in someone's life or in the life of a society or, or, or in, in a sort of joined up map of reality that people hold. Um, If we're talking about having no one else in the spot that God should occupy, what does that sort of spot look like? Uh, And how how might we know that something else has taken God's place in that? Here, Here are some of the things that I think that someone's God does for them and that we are forbidden from putting anyone else in in God's place in these things. So someone's God uh, is the one who defines reality for them. So when it comes to deciding what is and what isn't, when it comes to deciding what something means, when it comes to defining where things have come from and where things are going, then uh, the being or the idea that does that for someone is their God. Um, So an example. When science is the definer of reality, such that science gets to decide what reality means, where it's come from, where it's going, then science has the God spot for someone or for for a society. Um, So that's the first thing that a a God does for someone. Um, Someone's God also defines right and wrong for them. When it comes to deciding what is right and wrong, whatever idea or being that does that in someone's thinking or in someone's system, in someone's life, um, the one who the one who defines what is right and wrong and the one who upholds that standard, that for them is their God. So uh, another example in, in our day and age, uh, personal autonomy tends to take this spot for a lot of people. So when personal autonomy is the decider of right and wrong, that means that personal autonomy has the God spot. It has taken the place of God. And um, we can see both of these first two, two things in, in Genesis 3 pretty clearly, I think. Did God really say, i.e. does God get to define what is real? These things, does he get the final say in this? And, uh, and what does the serpent say will happen if Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? They will be as God. I mean, that's that's the thing, that they will be like God if they get to define what is good and evil. We see those things fairly clearly. Um, the third thing that I think someone's God does for them is that their God is the ultimate provider of every good thing. So when it comes to who ultimately gives the goods, who ultimately provides and protects then the being that is is held in that place for someone, that is their God, either of personal society. So another example, um, we live in a time when the state, for example, 
has become the one who provides all good things, who all must look to the hand of the state to receive their daily bread, to protect from every evil. Uh, so for many, the state has become the God. It has taken the God spot there. The point of the first commandment is that God's people will know that the only one worthy of that spot, the only one who has a right to be in that place, to be on that throne really, is the true and living God of the Bible. Only the Lord has that right. Um, any questions? Yeah. Here are some reasons why God is the one who has the right to be there. Firstly, because God is the creator. Um, I wonder if you've ever thought about the words authority and uh, author and how they're connected. Um, they they share, share the root because the ideas are, collect, are connected. The author who has authorship has authority. Um, God has all authority. God has the full right to be the God of everyone because he is their author. He is their creator. Um, such that he is in a completely different class of being than anything else that exists. Uh, he is... Uh, it, it's sometimes easy to, to imagine God as just sort of one of us, but a bit bigger. You know, if you take if you take uh, if you take David and you just sort of scale him up, make him a bit more powerful, a bit more powerful, and keep on going, keep on going, keep on going, you'll eventually reach God. You know, but that's not that's not what it's like. God is entirely other, um, just as the author of a book is entirely other from the characters that he's written in the book. You know, there is no bridging that gap in terms of of what kind of being uh, they are. Um, so God is not worthy of worship just because he's bigger than all of the other things that are. God is not just worthy of worship because he is um, stronger than all of the other things that are. God is worthy of worship because he is completely other, because he is creator. Um, that is why he has the right to be in that spot and no one else does. He's not earned that right. He has it by right. Um, the pagan gods, those are the ones that are like the big version of us. If you read the pagan mythologies, they're just how you'd imagine a man or a woman to be, but bigger and more powerful. And they demand worship because they've earned it. And they're strong enough to squash you if you don't give it. God deserves worship by right of being creator being holy other. Uh, he is worthy of all worship, of all honour and all service. And he would be whether or not he had saved us at all. Um, even if we were all still bound to hell, we would still owe him worship. If he had done nothing nice to us ever, except for create us, we would owe him worship and service. That is what we would owe to him. Um, he's not, he doesn't earn it. He has it by right of who he is. Uh, this is Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. 
Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. So God has uh, this right of worship because he is the creator. But layered on top of that, he deserves worship because not only is he a cre- our creator, but he is also our saviour and our covenant Lord. Um, not only is, the God who, is he the God who has created us, but he's the God of covenant providence and salvation as well. He's the God of, uh, he is the God who has taken his people, made them his by saving them out of slavery to sin, and now blesses them. And so he is, he is worthy of honour for that as well. He saved us, bought us, we're his people, we're his flock. Uh, he, is, he is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. He's the God who appeared to Moses. He's the God who uh, rescued Israel from Egypt. He's the God who showed faithfulness throughout the generations, generation to generation. And now he is the God who has joined us, who are Gentiles, into the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so that all that he has done for them, he has done for us as well. We're part of this family. We're heirs of this covenant. And he deserves praise above all others because he alone has done all of this for us, for our people, for those who are in our covenant. No one else has created us. No one else has saved us. No one else welcomes into, us into covenant relationship with him. Um, we also have the metaphor of bride and bridegroom in the Bible. This is a similar one. Um, we are those who've been married to God. We're bound by vow and by blood to him. And so he demands our exclusive loyalty. Um, in fact, in fact, the Bible says he is jealous for it. Um, he is jealous. He's a God is a jealous God for exclusive loyalty of his covenant people. Um, and he outright calls loyalty to any other. Uh, that is, he outright calls breaking this first commandment adultery throughout the scriptures. It's as if his bride has run off with another. Um, And in in really sharp language, God often compares his people to prostitutes because they have failed to have him in that God spot that he deserves through buying them, through rescuing them, through uh, taking them as his own. So uh, God deserves this spot as the only one to be worshipped in all of life and in particular worship because he is creator and because he is our covenant Lord and has saved us, redeemed us and blesses us. And now, something to note that's that's key to this command is that God God, uh, demands to be known and worshipped, really, as he has revealed himself. Um, God has shown us who he is and... uh, this first commandment has, has in it the command to take that revelation as entirely authoritative. Um, we're not free to make up for ourselves who God might be, what he might be like, what kind of things he loves and hates, um, what he requires of us, the things that he has done for us, his, 
his character. We're not free to make that up. He's revealed it to us. And, and the first commandment here binds us as God's people to listen to him and to take his word for it when he tells us what he's like. Um, and and, and it, we are bound to God's revelation of himself without any sort of deviation. Um, to make up who God is, even whilst keeping the name, would be adultery as well, in this sense. It would be breaking this exclusive loyalty. Um, so that brings us on to the, the topic then of, uh, of how this, this commandment now applies to us who live later in God's revelation of himself, uh, to a really key point. Fulfilling the first commandment now means that we must worship Christ as God. Um, and in our worship of the true God, that must include Christ as God in it. Uh, because that's how God has revealed himself. God has revealed himself progressively through this shared history with his people. Uh, we see his glory more fully now than we did back in Abraham's day. Uh, and... and and with God's revelation now, we see that, um, that if we are to worship the true God truly, we must also worship Jesus Christ. Um, there's no avoiding that. There's no, uh, there's no worshipping just God of the Old Testament anymore. Uh, God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And we must now worship him and worship Christ. Um, shockingly, for someone reading through the Old Testament and, and taking uh, what the Old Testament says seriously about God being one, uh, when Jesus comes, he accepts worship from people. Um, this, is, this is plain throughout the, the New Testament. This is Matthew 28, 9. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings, and they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Um, it is, it is plain that, um, that not only does the first commandment here not forbid worshipping Jesus, um, which is a shock in itself for, for, for many, but since God now has revealed himself most fully, to now refuse to worship Jesus as God is to break the first commandment. Um, you know, we see throughout, throughout the New Testament, uh, I mean, Jesus again says that he... He must be honoured as the Father is honoured. This is John 5, 23. Um, Jesus says uh, that, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Um, so Jesus demands worship for himself as worship is due the Father. In Hebrews 1 we see that even the angels worship Jesus as God. And we see that all tongues will one, uh, all knees will one day bow to him and all tongues will one, one day confess that he is Lord. So, so now for us who are living in this age, worshiping God, obeying the first commandment requires that we worship Jesus Christ. Um, and more than that, it requires that we worship God as triune. Uh, because, again, for exactly the same reason, God has revealed himself clearly as triune. Uh, 
Um, and so if we want to obey the first commandment, we need to worship and serve God as he has revealed himself to be, Father, Son and Spirit. Um, th that's the name into which we are baptised as believers um, in this covenant age. Uh, to refuse to worship God as triune, as Father, Son and Spirit, would be to refuse to worship the true God. And even if we pretended that we were worshipping the God of the Old Testament, we would still be breaking this first commandment because we're not doing it on his terms as he has revealed himself. So, so this, uh, uh, this Ten Commandments uh, still used uh, in the New Testament. Yes, so, so the... Um, uh, as we, so what we've said in, in previous lectures is that uh, the, the, the whole Bible is one covenant document, one document for all of God's people through all of time. Okay. And that the Ten Commandments yes. form the, uh, the sort of chief explanation of the main things, the main duties that God requires of us. Uh, he's shown us great kindness. He, he now asks us to respond in faith and obedience. Uh, he has summarised what he requires, his standards, uh, in things like the two greatest commandments, love God and love your neighbour. And a further explanation and application of those is found in the Ten Commandments. The, great, uh, the greatest uh, commandment. So the greatest commandment is love God with your heart, soul, mind and strength. Yes. And the second, Jesus says, is love your neighbour as yourself. Yes. Uh, as you know, on Sunday I preached uh, the blessings. Uh, as you see, the, what is truly joy, as the, the blessing, God bless um, his people, uh, as uh, who uh, keep the Ten Commandments. Ten commandments. So, certainly, faithful obedience is linked to blessing throughout the history of God's people. Yes, um, but, but the one person said uh, that is the uh, Ten Commandments is all the testimony, uh, but it's not a new testimony, we can need to uh, obey it. <laughs> I, I cannot, just yeah, yeah. Uh, there is. We, there is no fundamental disconnect between God's people in the Old Testament and God's people in the New Testament. There is a coming of age, there is a maturation, there is a sort of, if you imagine a flower coming into bloom, yes. that's what happens between Old Testament and New Testament. There's no great split there. Uh, I mean, and Jesus says on the, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you know, not one bit of this law will pass away. And anyone who teaches anyone to not obey this, this law will be called least in the kingdom of God. Um, so we see there that though the law and the application of the law is transformed in many ways, it does not pass away. So the Ten Commandments are still authoritative for God's people. Authority, all right. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. Because the Chinese people see the Ten Commandments for the Old Testament, they need to obey. Now you can teach them otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's zero. Oh, sorry, Kate. Okay, I, I, I take this for a second. Okay, no problem. Um, so God has revealed himself as triune, 
We must therefore worship him as triune, as Father, Son, and Spirit. All right. As, uh, yeah. I don't know this word, I always say three in one. Yeah, 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 what does the first commandment require of us in our daily lives? Talking about broader applications then of this commandment. Um, there is a rich history, uh, particularly in the Reformed tradition, of reflecting on this question about all the commandments. What things does God um, pull, us forth, pull us forward into? And what does he tell us we must not do based on his, each of these commandments? Uh, if, if you happen to be reading the Westminster Larger Catechism at any point, as one does, um, you'll see there's a very extensive list of things there, um, of, of applications uh, of this commandment. And many of them are very helpful to sort of think through and go, okay, well, yeah, maybe I've not reflected on that. It's, it's a helpful mirror to hold up against your life and go, okay, yeah, no, maybe, maybe there are things I need to be convicted of that, uh, that I haven't thought about. Um, but here's the, much more simply, here's the Heidelberg Catechism, um, question 94. What does the first commandment uh, require of us? Now, for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints or other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God, to trust in him alone, to submit to him with all humility and patience, and expect all good from him only, and love and fear and honour him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against his will. Now, we're not going to go through all of that in detail, um, but I think it's a fairly elegant summary of the shape of righteous living according to this commandment. Um, let's think a little bit about some of the duties that we have here, some of the things God calls us into. Uh, based on this commandment. So firstly, he calls us into exclusive loyalty and trust. Uh, we need to have ultimate trust and loyalty to him alone. No one else gets to call the shots, basically. Um, whether that's another supernatural being, um, Baal, Moloch, Zeus, Thor, Odin, uh, and it's easy to scoff at those, you know, those are the things that the past had, those supernatural beings, let me tell you, and we'll talk about this again in a little bit, there is an ever-increasing, in these days, these things are coming back. Um, you might not have heard about it, but there's a lot, there's a, a huge um, uh, sort of wave of people getting involved with hallucinogens and engaging with uh, supernatural beings through the use of hallucinogenic drugs. That's working its way through society. Um, no other thing gets higher loyalty than God. No supernatural being, uh, no nation or state, no children, no spouse, no mother, no father, no friend. You know, think of Jesus's words here in, uh, in Luke 14. Uh, Whoever does not hate mother and brother or father or husband or wife, etc. Um, 
this is what we're talking about. We're talking about highest loyalty. And when Jesus is speaking there, he's obviously not saying that you should, uh, you know, hate your, your brother and mother and sister. He's, he's saying that you should love him above all of those. So that if, it comes to the, if it comes to the choice between loving him and hating them, what you do is you hate them. No question asked. You know, that's what you do. Uh, in the course of our loyalty to God in our lives, he, he, he of course calls us to varying levels of lesser loyalties to other things. Um, but when it comes to final allegiance, that is all Christ's. If there's ever a conflict of interest, we must see it as a no-brainer that we have loyalty to God above all. Um, if we have loyalty to anything else above God, um, in other words, if we value uh, the words of anyone, if we value, if we value the defining of reality, the provision of good, the, the defining of right and wrong of anyone over the words of God, then that reveals to us that we have a God above God. Um, so uh, God requires of us ultimate exclusive loyalty and trust of him. Um, the first commandment requires that we recognise that ultimately every good thing comes from his hand and not from anywhere else. Um, not from our own power, not from the money we might be able to scrape together, not from uh, the power of the state, um, not from husband or wife, not from our work, not from the sun, moon and stars, you know, from none of these things. Every good thing ultimately comes from the hand of God. So just an example here. When the state says, give me a tithe of 10% or realistically greater, and I will provide all you need for life and health and will bring blessings to you and your family and all of your heritage after you, look to me for your daily bread, then we can see that the state is calling us to look to them for provision in a way that we should only look to God for provision, ultimately to God for provision. Now, this is not to deny that God uses means, it's not to deny that God, um, you know, provides our daily bread through the faithful working of a job that, you know, I might do to provide for my family. But this is recognising that he is ultimately our provider. Um, if we are to have anything good, we will have it from his hand. And we will have nothing good if he does not give it to us. Uh, if he does not bring the blessing then ultimately we cannot have anything good because no one else can provide it. He is the provider of all good things. Um, just James 1. Exactly, 17, yes. Every good and perfect. Every good thing that comes from the Father is above. Yeah, Father of light, Susan, uh, yes, exactly. Uh, that's, that's the attitude. This is, this is throughout the Bible. Um, I think these days we tend to look to sort of high-level politics to provide our good not God and his appointed means. It's God and what he has said and the ways that he has said he'll provide for us that we need to look to. Um, from the hand of God, from the hand of the gift giver who is above. Uh, and I think that leads quite nicely on to the next duty that we have, uh, which is thanksgiving. Uh, thanksgiving in the Bible is incredibly, incredibly important in a way that we, we rarely don't notice. Uh, we rarely notice, rather. Um, I'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. That's a, that's a 
phrase that comes up frequently in the Psalms and we would do and elsewhere and we would do well to get into the very fibre of our beings uh, and those that we spend time with. You know, it is never inappropriate to burst out with a give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Um, we often reserve these things for large moments of his provision, but he has provided us with large and small. Uh, and we have a duty to be thankful for him. The practice of saying grace before meals is not meaningless. Uh, it is, um, for those who do it in faith, is a, is a means of great blessing mm. to be reminded that these things come from the hand of God. Um, and when we see sin enter in the Bible, it is often linked very closely and explicitly to a refusal to be thankful to God. Uh, so think of Romans 1. Although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Refusing to honour God and refusing to give thanks to him was the beginning of the downfall into the darkness of sin. Um, or here um, from Deuteronomy 28, this, this is... What will this is what will bring about the covenant curses of God in, in Deuteronomy 28. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. So we see that God is an abundant giver of all good things and the covenant curses will come upon this people because they refuse to, to be glad and joyful and thankful for what he has given. Deuteronomy 28, that's verse 47. Yeah, yeah. The first commandment commands ongoing and continual thanksgiving to, to the Lord. Um, as we've said, every good thing comes from him. He is the great gift giver. Uh, this is not burdensome. Uh, it's weird how we find this burdensome. Uh, we're so enamoured with our own ability to get the things for ourselves that it somehow offends our pride to accept that everything comes from God. And, and yet when we stop and we recognise this, God is a gift giver that, that is able to give greater gifts than we could ever, you know, as Jesus says, if you who are sinful know how to good, give good gifts to his children, how much more does our Father in heaven know how to give good gifts to his children? God is an overflowing gift giver. And this should be a joyful thing then to give thanks to him for even the smallest things that he's given, which are all more than we deserve. So uh, the five, that's, that's the duty that, that we're called to, thanksgiving. And these are, I'm using the word duty, that might sound cold and hard, but they are duties. These are things that the Lord requires of us. Yeah. They're not things he requires of us abstract of relationship with him or his, his, his giving of the ability to do them to us. Um, but he does require them of us. Um, we do well to take them seriously. The next uh, and final duty, really, that I want to focus on uh, is the duty of adoration. Uh, God requires that we praise him and offer him adoration. It's, it's really not hard to find this in the scriptures. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this I think this has a particular application to sung adoration. Um, spoken adoration is good. Uh, poetry is glorified speech and song is glorified poetry um, you just read the Psalms for this it is everywhere Psalm praise, spoken adoration this is uh, 
verbal, formal, it's corporate as well as individual. Um, the praises of God ought to be on the lips of God's people. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. That's Psalm 95. Um, a full survey of the Psalms really is beyond our scope here. Um, but suffice it to say, the calls to adoration, even just in that one book, are manifold. Uh, and as I've said earlier, in the New Testament, we get that great peek into the heavenly temple in Revelation. And what are the obedient hosts of heaven doing there? What are the glorified saints doing? It's adoration and praise. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. The first commandment requires adoration of God. And I think it requires adoration of God in the gathered assembly of God's people as well. All right, we could talk a lot longer about the duties required by the first commandment. Uh, let's, let's turn to consider some of the prohibitions of the first commandment as well. The things that uh, God says stop doing um, with the first commandment. As with, as with all parts of sanctification, as we saw several weeks ago now, uh, there are things to embrace and there are things to reject. There are things to go into and things to leave behind. Um, many of these really are the flip side of those duties. And we won't go, we won't dwell on, on those unnecessarily. Um, the, big, the big prohibition, the big thing that we must not do is idolatry. What is idolatry? We've talked about it a little bit before. It's putting anything else in that God place. Uh, it is trusting anything else or anyone else to provide the good ultimately. Uh, it is having ultimate loyalty to anyone or anything else. It is offering of uh, formal corporate worship to anyone and anything else as well. Um, idolatry is the big thing. It is the big sin. A clarification. I think we've become quite lax with the term idolatry in our modern evangelical circles. Um, we've used it as shorthand for a while now of a, sort of a way of saying you've made it an idol when you're just a bit too interested in something. So take a good thing, you've made it an idol, which means you're too invested in it, or you like it a lot. Um, so idolatry of family when someone is just, you know, thinks it's important and trying to do it well, or idolatry of marriage or idolatry of work when they're just hard workers. Um, so we've taken idolatry to mean sort of focusing on some things. And sometimes we've taken it to mean being over-invested in something as well, which is, uh, you know, a true category of thing. It is possible to be over-invested. Um, but really, in the scriptures, idolatry is much stronger than that. Idolatry is when something takes that ultimate allegiance spot. Uh, and so it tends to be, um, in the Bible, someone who is an idolater is someone who has really given up their faith in the Lord. It's not someone who is just a bit unfocused in their, in their which is a problem. Yeah. But it, that's not really the category of idolatry often in the Bible. Um, it's, a, it's a sort of binary allegiance thing. You're either a worshipper of the Lord Jesus Christ or you're an idolater. Uh, there's, it's not, there's no real, I guess there's a sort of syncretism. You can sort of, uh, you can be 
a worshipper of Jesus who is tempted by those idols and sort of going that direction. And that's a real problem that needs to be addressed. And the Bible does talk about it in that way sometimes. But by and large, idolatry is the big dividing sin between those who are in God's people and those who are cast out of God's people. Uh, so, for example, 1 Thessalonians uh, 1. Um, I'll just read that actually. First Thessalonians, yeah. Okay, so First Thessalonians 1 verse 9, Paul is uh, talking here about the great things he's heard about the, uh, the Thessalonians uh, since he's been away. He was with the Thessalonians for just a few weeks. And he is worried sick about them, but he's just received a good report. And one of the things he's, he's heard is this. They themselves report concerning uh, us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see that, 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 that binary nature of idolatry. These Thessalonians were idolaters. And now they are worshippers of, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, so just a, a note of warning in, in, in using idolatry language. You might be over-invested in something, but that does not mean that all of the Bible's language of idolatry is brought to bear on you. You might need to repent of things. That's the, you know, there might be things that you need to repent of, but it's not necessarily idolatry. Uh, idolatry is a strong category, a really strong category because it is a really awful thing. And, you know, none of this should be taken as me saying that it is not easy to fall into it and that we shouldn't be vigilant against it. Um, there is something in the heart of humanity ever bent towards idolatry. Um, however, just to say, it tends to be the big dividing line between those who are with God and those who are against God. All right, the, the next thing that uh, I want to talk about that the first commandment prohibits is sorcery and the invocation of other beings. Now, I don't think this is a category we think about often these days, certainly in the West. I mean, it may well be, the, you know, in different places, it very much is a category people, people think of. Um, something that's worth uh, thinking on is that the first commandment forbid it, uh, forbids sorcery. And, and you know, this is not just the reformers being a little bit imaginative with their now, this is throughout the, the Old Testament. Sorcery is forbidden, not because it's useless and a waste of time. Uh, sorcery is forbidden because often it isn't useless. This is not just a projection of superstition, though, though it is that as well. But it is a recognition that there are other powers out there who will provide and protect superficially if it means gaining your allegiance. So the prohibition against uh, sorcery in the Bible is not just, you know, oh, don't waste your time. It is a warning against letting others who really would, um, there are powers out there who would take your allegiance. And sorcery is a way of getting at them uh, somehow. Do not go there. Just do not go there. That's what the Bible says. It is not where the people of the living God go for their protection and provision. They are people of the living God. 
They must not trust anything else. They must not invoke the name of any other being for power, for provision, for the ability to uh, manipulate creation around them. God is the source of blessing for his people. Any questions on that one? No, but I think it's relevant. I think it is. Yeah, yeah. There are people, even in my lifetime, um, my sister was three years older than me, I went into a darkened classroom during lunch break, this was in England, in the 1970s, and they were doing yep. awful, awful things, invoking, yeah, reading yep. boards, and yeah, yep. awful. It is. So it's happening. It is yeah. happening. Yeah. Uh, and I think it is happening more now yeah. than it used to be. Yeah, these things are uh, growing in the shadows again. They won't be. They won't be forever because Christ is on the throne. Yes. But yeah. but you know we're in a particular time, and that is a, a relevant thing that, that Christians in the West need to be on their guard against. Mm-hmm. Um, the next thing that uh, the next thing that is prohibited by the first commandment is apathy. Is not caring about who God is not caring about what God has done for you, not caring what he calls you to. Um, The first commandment tells us that we must care about who God is. Now, we are called to increasingly know God and be drawn into closer fellowship with him. Not caring about that is something that the first commandment prohibits. Um, The first commandment tells us that we must care about um, what he's done for us. And we see this in, in, in Hebrews. It is an awful thing to neglect such a great salvation has been done for us. Um, again, in Hebrews, uh, thinking little of this covenant, of the blood of this covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ, is a terrible thing. Uh, you know, it's possible to, to trample underfoot the blood of a covenant. And that is a fearful thing to do. Um, and so the first commandment here prohibits apathy, not caring, neglecting such a great salvation. In fact, despising the covenant promises of God. I mean, take the example of, of Esau. The great sin of Esau in the Old Testament is that he despises the covenant promises of God. Now, his by birthright. He would happily sell them for a bowl of soup. Mm. He despises them. He thinks nothing of them. He treats them as junk to be tossed aside. And if we do the same thing, and we are breaking the first commandment, and we're like Esau, and remember God's God's, uh, declaration of his feelings, really, towards Esau. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Um, Sobering warnings, I think. But important warnings, warnings that are given, sort of hard words that are given for soft hearts amongst the people of God. Uh, and it is breaking the, the first commandment to, to, uh, to be apathetic about what God has called us to as well. Uh, I think that includes apathy about him calling you to worship with his people. Uh, apathy about the roles and the responsibilities that he's given to you. Um, really apathy about any of the things that are going to follow in any of the Ten Commandments that we're going to look at. Um, now, this is not about perfect obedience. This is not about having, uh, you know, an off day. Uh, this is, the, you know, the, the sins of God's people are many, but the, the blood of Christ washes them more than abundantly. 
So this is not about perfect obedience, but this is about not caring. It's about despising the promises of God. It's about despising the things that God has done for you and called you to, and not about being imperfect in them. Uh, the next thing that uh, is prohibited by the first commandment is heresy. Heresy. That is believing wrong things about God. Uh, believing, the, yeah, believing lies, believing wrong things about God. Yeah. Um, the wrong things about God. Yeah. Because this heresy and uh, this is no same heresy and no colleagues. Uh, it's no other cults. Uh, yes, a cult is a heresy. It's yeah. a wrong religion. Ooh. It's not the same meaning. Almost it's close. They're linked. Yeah, they're linked. Yeah, they're linked. Um, so believing heresy breaks the first commandment essentially because it's it's you're doing. If you embrace heresy, you're doing what what we we're talking about earlier. You're not worshiping the true God as He's revealed Himself. Mm. You are putting yourself in the place of God instead of trusting him and his revelation of himself. Um, instead of saying that I will have God as God on his terms, it's a I will set my own terms. I will describe him as I wish to describe him. Um, now, it's... Can you imagine what is that? Yeah. yeah uh, yes. Uh, I couldn't uh, uh, really understand. Uh, what? Why is it wrong? Heresy. For example, you say Jesus is not God. Yeah. It's heresy, right? Yeah. Oh. Because and and the reason it is so wrong is that it is trying to take God on your terms. It's you not believing what He has said about Himself. It is you trying to tell God really what he said about himself and tell others what God has said about himself, not accepting what he has said. Um, and as we've said, worshipping a God who is fundamentally different from the God who has revealed himself, even if you keep the same name, which many heretics do, is, is still breaking this commandment. It's still worshipping a false God. Um, and what we believe about God is important. You know, the, um, we can sometimes fall into a bit of an intellectual, uh, an anti-intellectualism, uh, sort of, oh, it doesn't really matter what we believe God to be, you know, as long as we feel the right things or as long as we do the right things. But who God is and who we believe him to be is, is fundamentally important because he has revealed yeah. himself to us. And so we have a duty to pursue the truth about him uh, and not just go along with whatever we think about him as long as we're feeling in the right way or doing the right things. Mm -hmm. um, now, there's a difference between error and heresy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, we all have some wrong ideas of who God is. But heresy is when you are embracing those, refusing the warnings to turn back away from them, from the scriptures. Um, you know, the line can be thin at times. Um, I think it's, it's easy to see 
the, the extremes of the spectrum there. Um, there is a difference. There are many of us, well, we're all in error to some extent, um, but we're not all heretics. Um, yes. Inti so. Wright says probably about 20% of what we believe may, may be error. Okay. Yeah. I don't know where he's got those stats from. No, no, but, I think know. just, yeah. Yeah. But yes, we, we, we recognise that all of us are limited and therefore don't know everything and know something's wrongly. But that doesn't make us heretics. But there is such a thing as heresy. And intellectually knowing what who God is is really important. Because, uh, the truth. Uh, read, uh, uh, he was playing the heresy. Is uh, uh, this is a goddess uh, way, mm -hmm. but there is someone uh, believe is uh, that it is. He's not a only right way. Yeah. 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 Just like a pen Yeah, 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 Okay, just uh, just to finish up, some uh, some thoughts on how the First Commandment applies to some particular issues we see around us in the modern world. We've talked a little bit about neo-paganism already. There is a resurgence of out-and-out -out paganism in our day and age. Um, there is the occult in the background. Um, I've mentioned hallucinogens, meetings with other beings, all which present themselves as a serpent, suspiciously, uh, or many. Um, there is an increase in people embracing the old gods as the influence of Christianity is diminishing for the moment. Um, there is a, a romanticization of much of the pagan past um, in, in many places. Um, and obviously, this is the kind of thing that is forbidden to be embraced by believers. Uh, we must stand against it and not even countenance uh, taking part in it. Um, uh, I think evidence of this rise in neo-paganism in the world around us, um, I mean, think about the things that always go along with pagan idol worship. You have sexual immorality, always goes with it. Uh, weirdly enough, some sort of embrace of androgyny, the blurring of the lines between male and female, okay. tends to come with yeah. idol worship, and widespread sacrifice of children. These are the things that go along with pagan god worship. I think it's no coincidence that we are seeing all three of these things on the rise in society around us. Abortion. Abortion, yeah. yeah. Uh, abortion, transgenderism and the things that have led to it and, uh, and sexual immorality and the breaking down of uh, sex within its covenant bonds. Um, these things always go with idol worship. And idolatry in the New Testament always seems to be linked with sexual immorality. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we as Christians must have nothing to do with such things. 
uh, we worship the true and living God, and he is not like these pagan gods. Um, the next thing to talk about, Islam and other cults. Uh, I call Islam a cult because that's essentially what it is. It is a distortion of Christian and Jewish ideas. Um, Islam and other cults, they often claim to worship the same God. But here's where what we've been talking about applies. They don't worship him as he has revealed himself. Um, they don't worship him uh, as he's revealed himself. They, they often don't worship him as triune. So you think of the Jehovah's Witnesses. For them, Jesus is not divine. He's not God. There is no triune God. The same with Unitarians. Um, the Mormons are all over the place. He is a human that sort of was adopted into godness by being excellent um, for the Mormons. Um, and obviously for Islam, the Trinity is absolute anathema. Mm -hmm. uh, they may claim to worship the same God. They do not worship God as he has revealed himself. Uh, therefore, despite these superficial similarities, these, this is false God worship and breaks the first commandment. And it is something that the people of God must have nothing uh, to do with. Uh, and, and there are also, within people who are professing to be Christians, there are numerous attempts to sort of reframe how God has revealed himself. Um, from some very serious through to sort of less obvious, I wouldn't say less serious, but less obvious ways of doing this. So you've got a, you know, a push in some circles to claim that God really is feminine, um, despite him revealing himself mostly masculine as father. You know, God is father, from whom all fathers get their name. Uh, there's an there's a attempt in many circles, or not many, many is overstating it, in some circles to uh, scrap that version of how God has revealed himself to fit in with current social trends. Um, that is breaking the first commandment. Um, along with things like God not uh, revealing himself through scripture but using other means. So some people who would say that um, scripture really is not the faithful guide to who God is. It's not his covenant word that reveals him. There are other ways that we get there, really. Uh, and these are all essentially um, breakings of the first commandment to not take God at his word. Mm -hmm. um, and things that Christians should have nothing to do with. Um, and the final thing, uh, we live in a society that is attempting to be pluralistic with other religions surrounding us. Um, the intent in this section is not to get into a full sort of uh, discussion on the interaction of uh, Christianity and society. There will be a time where we talk about that uh, later in the course. Um, but for now, let's uh, let me just say that um, I see religious pluralism as an attempt to get at culturally good things, bypassing the means of acknowledging the true God and his exclusive lordship overall. Um, this idea that good things can come from any one of us by their God is not the picture that the Bible paints. All good things come from the hand of God. And it is worship of him at the heart of a people that leads to righteousness and blessing. Um, usually in 
sort of a, a religious pluralism in society. The one that they have in that God spot is a sort of neutral state who is the one who will provide the good things independent of a God above them. You can have that God in private, that's fine. But know that he is not the one who's bringing you the good things around you. It is we who are doing that. The state and human endeavour tends to be what has taken that position when religious pluralism is pushed through society as an ultimate good. Uh, now, this is not me saying that there should not be tolerance in society, mm. ways of working with people of other... But when, uh, when pluralism is taken as the societal ideal, as the thing that will hold this all together, what you've really got there is an attempt to get at good things without having God above all. Um, that's everything I've got to say on the First Commandment. Any questions, any thoughts, uh, anything you want to discuss further? We've got a bit of time. And, uh, uh, all other religions, mm. uh, they, they also were godly for their own gods. Mm. That's why I feel very strange. Um, maybe they think we are wrong. They may well do. I think like that. Yeah. I, 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 I can imagine that what God says that really counts. Yeah, it's not by saying I'm right, you're wrong. We're saying, well, this is what God says he is like. Yeah. So you're mm. not putting yourself up there. You're just saying, God says who he is. This is the truth. You know, God's word does not contradict itself. Yeah. So, I, I saw the fourth king every week on Friday, and they, they, they always wear black clothes. Who are these people? Uh, it's um, uh, Mercedes family. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, no. From the pre-Portland church. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Uh, that's why I think uh, they're so godly for their own God. When you talk your God, they love you. They think you're wrong. They think you're in the wrong way. Yes. Well, notice what the Apostle Paul says to the Jews of his time. He says, you are very godly in many ways. Yes. You, are, you are zealous mm. in your love for God, but it doesn't matter. Because you're, you're not worshipping God as he's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. So it's possible for people to be zealous for what they believe God to be like and yet to be entirely mistaken yeah. because they're not binding themselves to how God has revealed himself to be. And that's the tragedy. And that's the tragedy. And really, it, is, it, it seems humble for us to be like, well, I don't really know. Everyone else might be right. Everyone else might be right. The reality is that is us saying that God has not been clear when he has been clear. He's been very clear. He's been very clear. So it is the opposite of humility. It's saying that I am going to be the one who um, says whether God has told us whether he is what he is like. Yes. Um, the humble thing really for the Christian is to say, I, I'm not great enough to change what God has revealed about himself. I do not have that place. I don't have the right to. I humbly submit to God and his word. And that, that will sometimes look like confident arrogance to those who believe different things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it is actually deep humility because it is the humility that puts yourself under the authority of God and not under your own authority, mm -hmm. all those around you. What I found helpful was um, 
what you said about the anyone who denies Jesus is God. I'm thinking of the Hasidic Jews I worked mm-hmm. for for two years. Has broken the first commandment. Who told them that? No, no of course we haven't. But they they blatantly broken it yeah. because they refused to even consider the fact that Jesus could be the Messiah that they had missed. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. And yeah. they're berating their children. And the children come across as quite godly in some ways, mm-hmm. like uh, Fafa was saying. But they don't have true godliness because they don't know Jesus. Exactly. Because when you're born, probably in this, uh, for example, you're born in a Christian family. Mm-hmm. So your parents teach you at the beginning. And this is uh, God, really, truly God. But when they, like the location, the residence, they're building in this place, they said their God is the best. You think in the society we live in? Yeah, that's why they said this is very confusion. <laughs> but many Greek Orthodox people do believe in the true God. Oh, there's okay. a, yeah, there's a distinction okay. I think to make between. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk a little bit next yeah, week yeah, about yeah, yeah. Greek Orthodoxy. And, 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 you know, some, just some like things, I think uh, maybe they, they think they're the best uh, God, they believe the best. Yes, yes, they they have the true faith. Orthodox uh, means you believe the right thing. So the yeah. Greek Orthodox yes. have a monopoly. Yeah, Only they know the true God. And, not, uh, and my family in China, uh, they're very worried about me because they see the. Like me, uh, believe the God. I didn't go to uh, work hard to get money. I didn't do uh, too much things. Only study the Bible. They worry too much. They think I am in uh, runway. Yes. yes. <laughs> so from, their, from their point of view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, so, so I try hard to tell the uh, like this Chinese New Year. I called my. Older sisters, and uh, she said that you you serve as in the church. How much do you pay you? I said everything is from God. Everything God paid a lot. He <laughs> just uh, didn't see anything. So it's very difficult to preach for this because they cannot imagine. They cannot imagine what are you doing. But that's how we were before yeah. Yeah. Jesus revealed himself and to us, yes. right? But they knew this is good things maybe. And you're right to say that people who grow up in a Christian household often believe in the Christian God. That is one of the great blessings of God. You know, it should not be not be yeah. looked down. That's fantastic. And do you know what? Um, there is something that God has provided even to break into the families of those who are not born in Christian households. And it's the same thing that changes the heart of those born into Christian households. Mm. It is the gospel, which is the power of God to believe. I mean, reality is yeah. my family, if I go back far enough, is not a Christian family. It is the family of people worshipping these these yeah. Um, yeah. these pagan yeah. gods. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my family were probably, you know, I'm Anglo-Saxon heritage. They would be Thor and Odin worshippers back yeah. through the millennia until someone came and told them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all of that history in that moment then meant nothing because they were brought face to face with the power of God to save from idolatry, from the power of these false ideas of who God is. So we should never lose sight of the fact that because someone is in error and strongly believing that their God is the true God, I mean, just look at the power of God throughout the history of the world to change that fact. And that's the hope we have. The gospel really does break people out of worshipping in complete certainty 
They're false gods. One of my favourite verses in the Bible has to be how he's delivered us, I think it's in Colossians, he's delivered us from out of the uh, kingdom of darkness into um, the power, into the kingdom of his glorious light, or something yes, like yeah. that. Yeah. It's just amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's his deliverance, his saving, his work. So he did it for us, he can do it for the, like, but you were the Pearly family member you spoke to on the phone the other day. We just didn't really understand at all what you believe. Uh, yes, yeah. before the, 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 like, very important for me. Yeah. Now, slowly, yeah. slowly, uh, uh, change a little, a little, a little, just a little, a little change. <laughs> yeah. uh, because there, uh, there, are a lot of a lot of Christian or something they couldn't, uh, and as uh, as there is not a uh, good uh, Christian or something they didn't see really uh, one Christian surely God uh, to them, mm-hmm. so they can't they, they couldn't understand it. They can't understand. It. Thank you.